0: In our first two episodes, we took a bird's eye view of Shakespeare's sonnets, discussing their general form, their addressees, and some of the imagery and ideas that recur throughout the sequence. In this episode, we'll take a closer look at four sonnets. First, we'll use Sonnet 29 as a model to discuss reading strategies you can use to approach any of the poems. Then you can practice applying those techniques as you listen to three more sonnets with commentary from Michael Schoenfeld, John Knott Professor of English Literature at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor.
1: What I would recommend for a first-time reader, always read the poems out loud. Shakespeare was known for his fine, phylet phrase. And these are some of the smoothest and most gorgeous. In fact, it even can be hard to understand how complicated they are because they're so smooth. His smoothness belies the complexity. So I would let the music play, let the thrill. I mean, I don't know, but my ears, I honestly think even if I didn't speak English, I would love the sound of these.
0: As you're reading aloud, listen for the poem's rhythm. You may recall that the standard rhythm for a sonnet, just as for Shakespeare's dramatic works, is iambic pentameter. Listening for this rhythm means that you can also hear when the speaker varies that rhythm for emphasis or surprise.
1: The iambic pentameter, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It just, we, we feel good when we hear something falling into that, and we enjoy also hearing variations on that once that norm has been set up. Then I would think about what might be the implied situation of this little piece by itself. Who is the speaker talking to? And if so, why does the speaker say this at this moment and articulate it this way at this moment?
0: As we listen to Sonic 29, think about what that implied situation or occasion for the speech might be. What sort of situation is the speaker in? What prompts him to say these words?
2: When... In disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, Desiring this man's art and that man's scope, With what I most enjoy contended least. Yet, in these thoughts, myself almost despising, Haply I think on thee and then my state, Like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, Sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings.
0: We'll use this sonnet to look at some of Shakespeare's key poetic techniques. Keeping those techniques in mind as you read the sonnets can help you perceive the intricacies and novelties of each poem's construction and see how it adds new meaning to familiar themes. The Shakespearean sonnet is divided into three quatrains, or groups of four lines, followed by a couplet, or a rhyming pair of lines. This structure reflects the movement of the speaker's thought. Sometimes the quatrains offer contrasting points of view. Sometimes all three quatrains develop a single idea. Sometimes the couplet will wittily summarise the argument that came before, or sometimes the couplet will reverse it. Here we find a reversal after the first two quatrains. Lines 1 to 8 build on the idea of the speaker's dejection. The word yet at the start of the third quatrain indicates a shift in direction and the following lines show the speaker gaining new hope. Consider how this sense of hope would seem more or less powerful if it had been given eight lines, for example, or only two.
1: I think some of the couplets in some of those poems are almost bearing so much weight. When, to the sessions of sweet silent thought, I summon up remembrance of things past. We hear about all the losses over the course of the first twelve lines, and then we hear, but if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. A wonderful notion of the recuperative power of memory, but I think one that probably asks memory to carry too much weight for... I mean, think about 12 lines of loss and two lines of recuperation. Already you feel it's like buckling under the weight.
0: Also consider smaller elements of structure, like repetition and contrast. In the first quatrain, we find the word and repeated several times. And trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate. This builds up our sense of the speaker's relentless discontent. Meanwhile, the repetition of like him in the second quatrain, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, emphasises how many people the speaker envies. And when he says, with what I most enjoy contented least, the contrast or antithesis of most and least emphasises how absolute his dejection is. Another thing to consider is what critic Helen Wendler calls the key word of the sonnet. Often the sonnets will repeat a certain word or variations of that word. Watching how that word emphasises or changes its original meaning can help you follow the poem's thought process. Here, for instance, the speaker repeats the word state three times in lines 2, 10 and 14. In addition to key words, the sonnets also have key figures of speech, metaphors, images and symbols that give a material sense to the speaker's thoughts and feelings. That sense is both evocative and elusive. There's no simple way to translate or paraphrase the meaning of the poem's images but they channel our thoughts in richly suggestive directions. In this poem for instance the poet uses the image of heaven twice with a different meaning each time. Finally think about the way that a poem uses its imagery to recall a question or an idea from another poem. One advantage of writing a series of poems is the chance to explore a single idea from many different
1: points of view. I think that was part of the attraction even of the sonnet sequence. You don't just nail it down with one poem and then leave it aside, but you open it up again in the next poem, and you open it up again in the next poem, and you turn it on its head in the next poem, and you look at it from the side in the next poem, that it becomes a way for him of almost... uh, Thinking of a a jewel that you would keep rotating and seeing different fractures and different lights and and all of that, that it becomes a way for him to, to begin to explore. And so there are only, I would say, provisional answers. There's no final answer in that regard.
0: Love and desire are, of course, some of the recurring ideas in the sonnets. So too is the idea of time. The poems explore how time will inevitably bring an end to both love and the beloved. And they also ask what might withstand time's destruction.
1: I would say for the first time reader, one of the most important things to think about in in, in regard to this sequence is how the poems themselves are so contained and yet try to take on this the immense challenge of time. They do not posit, except for one example, poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, they do not posit an afterlife. The only salvation they can imagine against a time that truly destroys everything is their utterance, their compelling utterance of a desire that we still want to read. So part, I think, of the thrill of these poems is the way that we begin to fulfill some of that hope, that expectation. You'll find yourself, you'll find the poem, I would argue, just opening up. A word will jump out at you that you missed on your first two readings or your first 20 readings or your first 30 readings. I mean, these are poems that I've been working with for 40 years, and i am Starting to understand maybe a few of them, the easier ones, but they just keep kind of, they're like a flower that you think it's open and then it has another opening and then it has another opening. and then So just kind of keep reading, keep thinking about, keep letting the pleasure of the music react with the brilliance of the thought and think about how those things, almost like a song, Uh, wash over you and make you feel something that you probably couldn't have felt fully and entirely on your own.
0: Let's go back to Sonnet 29. As you hear it again, listen for those repeated structures and key words. How does the meaning of the word state change each time it's used? Or the image of heaven? What contrasting views of the speaker do we find at the start and the end of the poem?
2: When... In disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, And trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, And look upon myself and curse my fate, Wishing me like to one more rich in hope, Featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contended least. Yet, in these thoughts, myself almost despising, Haply I think on thee and then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate, thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings.
0: Now let's apply some of these reading techniques to our next three sonnets. First is Sonnet 18, a poem deeply concerned with the relationship of beauty and poetry to time. Listen for how many different units of time are named in this poem and also listen for repeated words like summer, and consider how their meaning expands and changes through the poem.
3: Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines by chance, or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. This is one of the most beautiful
1: sonnets here. Yet at the same time, I would even the opening comparison invites a meditation on the temporality of the beloved this gorgeous exploration uh, uh, thou art more lovely and more temperate this incredible almost climatological reading which i think probably carried even more weight in england where there are su- where summer days are long but summer is short and then we we begin to get in line 5 i find Slight critiques of the summer's day that they... This is a trick that Shakespeare does repeatedly. He'll compare somebody to something as a mode of praise and then say that he actually exceeds the thing I'm comparing him to. Because summer's too hot, the uh, sometimes too hot the eye of heaven shines and often is his gold complexion dim. But we hear at line nine, a kind of powerful turn, but thy eternal summer shall not fade. Now, we're not quite sure how this... Alchemy is going to happen. How is this young man going to be preserved, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. nor shall death brag thou wanderst in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest? I would argue with that line 12, when in eternal lines to time thou growest works actually on two levels brilliantly at once. Shakespeare's, on the one hand, opened up the idea of lineage, of having children, and that that will replicate and thus continue to eternity the beauty of the young man. The other way in which those eternal lines work are the lines in front of us. Shakespeare's own lines of verse, which carry the power to sustain, not The identity of the young man, since we have no idea whether he exists, who he is, whatever, but the idea of the young man. So long as men can breathe, the couplet says, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Again, verse is granted an almost divine power to give life and to sustain life well beyond the ravages of time and so we start out with a comparison to something that is temporal and we end up with a claim for the full powerful eternity of the the, the speaker's desire and the speaker's idealization of this, this gorgeous young man.
0: Our next sonnet, 116, also asks what can be saved from the ravages of time. It agrees that the beauty of the beloved may not endure, but argues or hopes that something else can. Listen again for repeated variations of key words, alter, remove, bend. Listen too for contrasting images, images of change or fragility versus images of
4: stability or endurance. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments, Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worths unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved.
1: One of the things that I think stands out about this poem, it's a statement about what love might be rather than an articulation of a desire. And I find this statement both highly idealized and almost as precarious as the summer's day. The opening, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. I find that aspiring to a kind of gorgeous intimacy, marriage of true minds. It's interesting that the genitalia do not matter there it's the mind it's the being it's the internal being that is being celebrated. love is not love which alters when it alteration finds and what's lovely there is the gorgeous pun on change so change is the thing that threatens love always but also buried in the word he uses for change alter is the very place where a marriage would have been consecrated at the altar and the power of that expression, which then gets fully laid out in the very complicated definition, love is not love, a really hard line with the line break and then which alteration when it, you know, suddenly you realize how hard love is to manifest if love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds. Things change. And one of the things that haunts these poems is the idea of change. And one of the things these poems are struggling towards is what does obtain, what does sustain. I find this poem a series of almost optative statements about love, what he would love for love to be. It never changes, it's not time's fool. It keeps saying what love isn't because love is so hard, in fact, to define. And it gets defined weirdly enough By its unchangeability, which suggests that if either the object changes or the subject changes or the feeling itself changes, somehow that's, that's not love. And yet this is also the poet who could write in Hamlet, one of the saddest lines, I did love thee once. Love is there and then it evaporates and where the hell does it go is kind of what he's trying to sort out in this poem in a deeply idealized form. And I would argue that here the couplet, the couplet reveals how bad the hand is that we're all playing in this game of love. If this be error, if things do change, it upon me proved I never, he makes it an almost absurd proposition since we've just read a poem. If I'm wrong to say that 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 love never changes, then, Nobody ever loved, which is kind of the nightmare of this poem, which is kind of the possible nightmare of this poem, And I never writ, which is kind of the impossibility of this poem that we've just read. So I find, you know, it's a, it's a desperate effort to, a brilliant and gorgeous and lovely effort to articulate the ideals, I think, that we all feel in those moments of heightened head over heels love and all of that. But not quite ready to take on the sort of mundane domestic who's done the dishes kind of uh, uh, love that we all have to learn to sustain in order to try to have an intimate relationship with another being. So I love this poem and I find as a little machine of optative desire, it's really powerful, but I think it's somewhat limited in that regard too. Mm. And limited by things that erupt throughout the sequence, deliberately.
0: Our final sonnet, 129, is also closely connected to time, but in a different sense. It looks not at the vast expanses of eternity, but at the vast difference we can experience between one moment and the next, the moment before and the moment after a certain action. Listen particularly for the verbs and the different verb tenses in the poem. How does the speaker's experience change when we move from having to had? You can also listen for antithesis or opposites, such as bliss and woe, and consider how they work to evoke the speaker's extreme feelings. The
4: expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action, and till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose lay to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had, having, and in quest to have, extreme a bliss in proof and proved a very woe before a joy proposed behind a dream all this the world well knows yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell
1: for me this is the most unique poem first of all it's the first poem i know whose explicit subject is orgasm. Since Petrarch, people have been longing and desiring for centuries, this poem is about what happens when you get what you want. And it's really not a very pretty picture, uh, according to Shakespeare, at least. There was the belief in the time that each orgasm shortened your life. You can hear how powerfully the financial language underpins the expense of spirit. It's giving up something in a waste. What a bad investment, a waste. And waste is, of course, also the erotic part of the body. And shame. Shakespeare would have known from his Latin that the very words for female genitalia, pudenda, mean shame, uh, shameful parts. I was talking earlier about the music of Shakespeare's verse. For me, this is one of the least musical verses he's ever done. Savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. Those are some of Shakespeare's most rough, ragged lines describing the compulsions described here. For me, this poem plays out the physiological underpinnings of the kinds of desire that other poems articulate so in such exalted ways. This poem is about the cycle of physiological desire and how it becomes almost a kind of nightmarish treadmill, kind of Sisyphean, pushing the boulder, no satisfaction, and suddenly you're back at the bottom, pushing it uh, back up again. I find it stunning that he would include in these poems With such gorgeous expressions of lightness and beauty, such as Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, this poem about the physiological compulsions of a human sexuality, it's telling in this poem that there's no gender of the object, that in fact, it's just about lust. There's no possibility here about how interest can be paid back not just in emotional satisfaction, but in children, there's nothing about that here. There's just a sense of being drawn to expend energy in a wasteful and demeaning way for an endless cycle until the couplet here. All this, he says, he loves to sum up things like that in the. Couplet. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. The idea that this is a kind of apparent heavenly pleasure that really just produces a hell of pursuit. As he says, mad in pursuit and mad in possession. So, it's almost like catnip. We can't stop it and yet it makes us crazy when we do it. We hear it before a joy proposed, behind a dream. What's stunning there is that the act itself is just, in this edition, a semicolon. That's how quickly it gets. The pleasure is so ephemeral, and that too haunts him. And then something like a post-coital tristesse settles in uh, that makes one feel bad, and then the desire starts creeping up again. I find this poem in its portrait of the compulsions of desire to be powerful and stunning, and nothing like anything that I've seen in previous English poetry. So for me, the value of this, this poem plumbs the depths, the physiological depths of the desire that produces so many of the celebrations in the other poems. And part of our effort is to try to calibrate those things, and they never seem really able to be calibrated.
0: Part of what makes Shakespeare's sonnets so extraordinary is precisely in how they can articulate our most celebrated ideals and our most devastating experiences in language that allows us to feel the force of both anew.
1: We would probably value the sequence less if it were only idealized poems or if it were only dark turgid poems. What I find lovely, like the alternation of sun and shadows, is the ways in which love can be this gorgeous and ennobling thing and this painful thing that makes you do things that you would never want to do. The poet who can write both that, the idea of love as a disease that haunts you and makes you consume exactly what's terrible, what makes you sicker. And Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? That tonal range is, is stunning, in part, I think, of the real value.
5: Shakespeare For All is written and produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Ashley Byam, for Sonnet 20, A woman's face with nature's own hand painted. And Sonnet 29, When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. Jeff Cornell, for Sonnet 147, My love is as a fever longing still. And Sonnet 18, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day. Amanda Harris, for Sonnet 116, Let me not to the marriage of true minds. And Sonnet 129, The Expensive Spirit in a Waste of Shame. For this course, information was drawn from, and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Patrick Cheney, the Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare's Poetry. Michael Dobson et al., the Oxford Companion to Shakespeare. Kim F. Hall, These Bastard Signs of Fair, Literary Whiteness in Shakespeare's Sonnets. And Things of Darkness, Economies of Race and Gender in Early Modern England. Lynn Magnuson, Shakespeare's Sonnets, A Modern Perspective. James Schiffer, Shakespeare's Sonnets, Critical Essays. Michael Shunfeld, a companion to Shakespeare's Sonnets. Tide, travel, transculturality, and identity in England circa 1550 to 1700. Helen Vendler, The Art of Shakespeare's Sonnets. And the following editions of Shakespeare's Sonnets. The 2002 Oxford Shakespeare, the 2004 Folger Shakespeare, the 2010 Arden Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to himalaya.com Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.